from GreenViz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the uncertain future of DOE's advanced energy research, inside GM's new ride-sharing push, get ready for carbon insetting, and a growing regenerative ag movement in Costa Rica. It's Pura Vida this week on 350. It's March 3rd, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me is senior writer Lauren Hepler. How are you doing, Lauren? Good, good. We all had a, a nice time holding down the fort while you were on your exotic travels last week. How was Costa Rica? Costa Rica was was great. We'll talk about uh, my part of that adventure, but it was a it was a fun fun week. I had a big birthday, and this was part of the celebration. You have to go to Wikipedia to see how big that worth birthday <laughs> was. Um, but um, as I put it, my fortieth birthday is now. Old enough to rent a car without parental <laughs> signature. I like that they should make a Hallmark card that says <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly, uh, and it was it was really fun, and the, the zip lining and the in the rainforest and hiking in the cloud forest, and uh, I spent a day on a farm, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, and um, yeah, just uh, great. And then you and Heather were sort of recovering. Well, you you know from well, I know Heather was recovering from Green Biz Seventeen, but. Uh, uh, where have you been? Yeah, so we were we, last week we wrapped up a lot of the stuff with GB17, and this week straight back into the grind. Lots of new things coming out in terms of companies releasing new products, interesting public-private partnerships. I've been following some in the transportation world that we'll jump into in just a few minutes. But for now, let's switch gears to the week in review. All right, Joel. So we mentioned that you had an adventure last week, but I know it wasn't 100% vacation. So what were you actually doing in Costa Rica? Well, aside from the vacation part, I got to spend a really fascinating day uh, with a company called Thrive, which is Thrive Natural. Uh, it's a men's skincare product, the company, although there's also some products now for women, and which uh, I've served as an advisor since uh, almost it was created uh, by a good friend of mine, Alex McIntosh. Alex uh, is a veteran of uh, both sustainability and, and, and uh, corporate sustainability and nonprofit. He was uh, a head of uh, sustainability for Nestle Waters North America and previously was with the Nature Conservancy. And in 2013, he started a company uh, to create um, men's and, and women's skincare products uh, using what he called a farm to face model. So he sourcing uh, botanicals, uh, antioxidant enhanced products, and things that uh, yeah, just have uh, been used uh, by the natives for a long, long time uh, in Costa Rica, but also proving a model called regenerative uh, farming, where um, growing and sourcing native plants that improve soil and biodiversity on degraded lands 
uh, allowing farmers to boost their income and providing high quality supply of plant oils for their for their products. So uh, I got a tour, spent the day with um, uh, the two people on the ground there, Mario Garcia, who's the head of uh, Costa Rica operations for uh, for Thrive and is a, himself an ethnobotanist, and uh, Laura Arsa Aita, who's director of product R&D for Thrive. And um, we took, they took me out to this farm, um, amazing farm, uh, where a lot of this work is being done. I have to say, I think farm to face is a new one within that, that whole supply chain realm. But the other thing I wanted to ask you, we I've heard about regenerative ag and sort of like a hippie co-op setting in Northern California, but is this really a model that has taken root in Costa Rica? Well, it's just getting going, I think. And I think one of the things that's exciting about uh, Thrive Natural is is that they are sort of proving the model and, and helping to bring a, a new generation of farmers into the fold. Although the farmer, we spent a day at the uh, farm of uh, Rafael Ocampo, who's actually one of Central America's most respected and well-known specialists in medicinal plants, a world-famous agricultural engineer who, working with, uh, with, with Mario and Laura, supplies the knowledge of ethnobotany and the and the, the formulation of how to turn this into products. Uh, so they're really proving what can be done in country. Um, and I, I think it's too early to say that this is the new way farming is being done, but in Costa Rica. But Costa Rica is at the front edge of, of sustainability, certainly in Central America, and maybe in some ways for uh, a lot of countries. Uh, just one example, as we drove out, um, we saw lots of uh, acres and acres or hectares and hectares of of palm oil, uh, palm plants, uh, palm trees for creating palm oil. They're doing this in a, in a sustainable way. They're not deforesting. Actually, they're creating it for internal use only. They're not exporting it. But they're showing that you can you can grow a lot of the things that have been problematic in a tropical setting without cutting down rainforests. Um, and so it's it's impressive, as and that's just one part of of the the country's commitment to its biodiversity, since tourism is its number one uh, income stream. And and you know they really have thought about this. Uh, it's the only country in Central America, I believe, where you know we gringos can go and drink the water, uh, where the the food is generally safe to eat, and we don't have to worry about a lot of the things you worry about in in other countries. So. I think you know if any place is going to create the conditions and 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 for for um, regenerative ag, uh, this is it. And, and by the way, just to your earlier comment, Lauren, this isn't a hippy dippy thing. I mean, we wrote about regenerative ag in 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 our book last year, the New Grand Strategy, uh, and regen. This refers to agriculture that sort of does the opposite of what conventional ag does. Conventional ag environmentally has been uh, depleting the soil, emitting carbon, and basically polluting the water. So regenerative ag are techniques that reverse that, that actually clean the water, uh, enhance the soil, and sequester carbon. That's being proved here in Costa Rica, and I think it's a model for, for what can be done pretty much anywhere in the world. So at the end of this long day of driving and spending this amazing time on the farm, watching all these things grow, not just these medicinal plants, but but uh, bananas and pineapples and avocados and coconuts and so many other things, I sat down for just a few minutes with, um, with Laura uh, and Mario, my host, and just sort of asked them 
the potential for this, not just in Costa Rica, but beyond. Here's what they had to say. So Mario, what's the potential to do the kind of work that you're doing here on Don Juan's farm uh, at a much broader scale in terms of regenerating land and creating uh, new kinds of, of, of beneficial oils and herbs? Well, the potential is huge. Um, one of the things that we really have to see with this kind of work is that we're creating um, better opportunities, not only for the people who are buying the products, but also for the farmers who grow the, who grow the plants, and also for the soil uh, of the, of the uh, ecosystems around it. Um, we are trying to create a new way of, a new model of business where we are improving the livelihoods of the people, where we are creating uh, healthy products and where we are uh, regenerating the land. So if we manage to expand from Costa Rica to other countries, uh, the impact on the planet and on our, our health as well, and on the, on the um, income of the families that are growing these products will be huge. So it's not only buying from a company where we don't know um, what our money is making, but we're buying from a company that is helping out uh, other people and the planet become much better than we found it. So we need a lot more companies like Thrive to really step up and, and look for these kinds of opportunities. Definitely, definitely. Uh, not only in the cosmetic uh, uh, business, but in every single um, um, a company, you know, in every single model. If companies care more about how they get their products or how they get their raw materials, if they can get uh, um, value added to those products and then more benefit to the farmers or to the people who produce them, it would be great. Laura, you talk about... Uh you see a lot of different plants and a lot of different opportunities to create um, new kinds of products. Is, is, it, is there a limit to how many different things you can create? Or, I mean, because we only need so many face creams and so many cosmetics. Or are there many other things that we could be doing with these plants and these farmers? Yes, I see infinite possibilities. There are many, many great uh, natural plants and extracts that we can use in this kind of products and that are extremely healthy for the skin. And I visualize like doing this kind of models that we are doing here in Costa Rica in different places of the world, empowering people, local people, taking advantage of their native plants that they have there in their land and, and using them in this kind of products, natural care products, but also as Mario says, in different um, segments, it could be food, not only natural care uh, or health care, it could be food or whatever, but taking advantage of the native plants that we have in, in each location and empowering people there. Is there a lot that we can learn from the farmers themselves in terms of the kinds of uh, ways to farm or the kinds of uh, things we can grow that we don't even know about yet? Yes, I think so. I think they are the ones holding the wisdom, the, our ancestors, and we should pay attention to how how they used to do their the things, and and start to to taking back that wisdom, and using it to to grow the soils and to make it in in a more sustainable way.
Well, thanks to you both for it was a fabulous, fabulous day. Thanks Thank you. you. Thank you. you so much. So from Costa Rica to Silicon Valley, we had another really interesting piece this week from our intrepid East Coast reporter, Keith Larson. He was taking a look at where the proceeds of Apple's $1.5 billion green bonds, the largest issued so far by any U.S. corporation, have gone. Um, So the company released their first green bond impact report, which highlights sort of the projects they funded in the 2016 fiscal year. And about $440 million went to a total of 16 projects, one of them being their particularly sexy new spaceship office project in the Silicon Valley suburb of Cupertino. Yeah, this is a great great project. It's been variously referred to as the donut or the spaceship, and now it's officially been dubbed Apple Park. Uh, This is the campus that Steve Jobs envisioned. In fact, his last public appearance before he passed was in front of the Cupertino, I believe, city council, getting uh, making a case for some of the uh, the permits that needed to be issued for this. Um, this is so big that in the middle of the spaceship of the donut, the donut hole, if you will, uh, Apple's current entire campus could fit. Uh, so this is a, a massive project, and uh, Apple being Apple, uh, both in terms of innovation and design, as well as its, its sustainability leadership, uh, really took uh, its this to, I think, as far as you can take it in this, um, uh, um, you know, nearly two million square feet of green buildings that they've put on this property uh, in terms of renewable energy, in terms of water use, in terms of recycling and materials recovery. It's going to be really interesting to see. Um, how they uh, how this fares in the world in terms of its its um, operations and and its occupancy satisfaction. I'm sure it'll be watched very very closely. Mm-hmm. And in terms of what they're actually doing to the buildings, we're not talking about just slapping a few panels on the roof. They're going to have a 16 megawatt rooftop solar system, plus uh, some use of biogas fuel cells. So that's kind of an interesting mix. Um, but also things like uh, looking at LED lighting fixtures and sort of really focusing on drawing down levels of energy consumption in the building. Um, But in terms of the green bonds proceeds in 2016, more than $129 million of Apple's funds went to renewable energy overall. So definitely not a number to scoff at. And more than $232 million went to those green building priorities. Yeah, and, and one of the, just one small part of this is that for the past couple of years, not too many far miles away in, in Silicon Valley, they've they've had a, f- a facility just growing the trees. They have a full-time arborist who's been working on this and making sure not only that, that everything's healthy, but also things are native and will work with uh, the sort of drought and floods and sort of <laughs> whatever this uncertain climate uh, the San Francisco Bay Area will have along with the rest of the world. So I, it's going to be really interesting to watch. But while we're talking about trees, let's move over to another really interesting story that we had. This is from Meg Wilcox from Ceres talking about something called carbon insetting that companies L'Oreal, Chanel – and Nespresso are doing. Okay, well, first question, how is this different from carbon offsetting? Well, it's it's not that different in some ways. In some ways, it's just a, it's, it's a little bit of a reframe. But the difference between carbon insetting and offsetting is that this is about planting trees 
in agroforestry systems that are part of a company's supply chain. So you're not just put planting them somewhere in the world. You're planting them. You're planting them somewhere in the world that is relevant to how where your company sources uh, and is part of the ecosystems in which uh, you know different different commodities, coffee in the case of Nespresso, uh, are grown. Um, so they they very much fit with you know creating better land, better ecosystems, and and better revenues for the for the companies uh, within a company supply chain. In terms of the financial scale of some of these projects, Nespresso is investing six hundred million dollars over five years in the initiative, um, sort of as a goal of setting up what they call a virtuous cycle, um, and that and that comes from their French division. So also interesting to keep in mind sort of the global aspect of all of this. Um, but we'll be curious down the road to see if more companies are getting in line to do this, how they sort of reconcile the different carbon emissions programs underway. Yeah, I think they're starting to see the multiple benefits. So just one example, uh, Ben & Jerry's financed planting 100,000 native trees in Uganda uh, to support the vanilla growers there for its, uh, well, ice creams. Uh, and they actually picked uh, trees, jackfruit and African cherry trees in this case, that are species that were they were selected to help the the vanilla farmers diversify their income by uh, having now other crops there. And so they're planting trees that sequester carbon that provide income, uh, which are improving the the resilience of the smallholder farmers that are part of their supply chains, uh, allow them to deal better with heat or droughts or irregular rains, things like that. So this is really an interesting uh, way of, of aligning environmental and social and economic uh, benefits. And uh, I, I, we'll see, you know, there's a, there's a new standard called uh, PUR, I guess P-U-R is a PUR project, um, is, uh, is their certification system, I believe. Uh, it's working with a number of different organizations that, that quantify the benefits. They're, at, they're out of uh, Paris and we'll link to them on on the page for this for for this week's webcast. But I think we're going to start to see you know with the standards developing and the multiple benefits that at least some of the leadership companies will start to look at this and who knows eventually it could become mainstream. And Joel, while we're on the topic, there was some discussion in the comments section. I'd be curious what you would think just given that we were talking about regenerative ag and some of the different ag systems you guys looked at in your book last year. We had a commenter say this is called carbon farming. Um so sort of situated in the broader realm of sequestering carbon on farms and all this, what would you advise for people who are trying to sort of get a handle on uh, the role of carbon sequestration in ag? Well, none of these terms have have hardcore definitions, at least not globally uh, agreed upon. Uh, I understand carbon farming to be uh, any method that allows uh, sequestration of carbon. For example, there's a system that we've we've talked about and written about um, and had speakers at our events where you're moving uh, livestock from different sections of a farm to and rotating them throughout the farm so that they are uh, actually seeding the ground and and helping the carbon sequester and letting the natural plants grow and and avoiding the use of of pesticides and, and fertilizers and helping to push carbon deep into the ground where it stays there for, for, for years. That's one form of it. So I don't know, maybe it's carbon farming, maybe it's not. This is one of those terms that I think we're going to hear a lot about any form of agriculture that sequesters carbon 
I guess, is carbon farming. So, uh, yes, and I don't know. One of the events taking place this week was the Energy Innovation Summit in Washington, D.C., put on by ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Projects Administration, uh, a division of the U.S. Department of Energy. Our own Shauna Rappaport was there and joins me now from the floor of that conference in just outside Washington. Hello, Shauna. Hello, Joel. Uh, sounds like it was quite a week. Um, I'm just curious, you know, ARPA-E was created, I guess, during the George W. Bush administration, but really blossomed during the Obama years, uh, looking at, uh, at renewable and other advanced energy technologies. What's the mood there now in the new administration? Was there a sense that this is going to continue or that was there a sense of certainty, excitement? Tell us about it. Well, you know, uncertainty is uh, definitely a word that that came up in a sentiment that was pretty palpable throughout the week. I mean, we have now what is arguably the most climate hostile administration in U.S. history and what is probably the most critical window for climate action in history. And, you know, for people like those in the RPE community who are so committed to accelerating a clean energy economy and the technologies that are required to do it, um, you know, that's that's scary. And talking with ARPA-E staff and even folks from DOE, but, you know, a couple drinks in later in the event, certainly digging digging deeper. It's clear that federal employees, you know, I saw both fear and perseverance. In fact, I'm reminded of one conversation with a woman who said, basically, you know, they're still waiting for confirmation of their their new secretary. And I remember her saying something like, the boss man is the one who's going to set the agenda. And until then, we're just going to keep on keeping on with what we're, we're here to do. So, you know, I think there's both a recognition of the uncertainty, but certainly a commitment to the mission as well. So RPE's mission, as I can best understand it, is to sort of look at sort of the out there kind of projects, the swing for the fences kind of technologies that just don't get the kind of uh, of funding or TLC from the, the traditional uh, R&D or, or, or venture uh, funders. And so what are some of the things you talked about at the event? What were some of the key technologies that the RPE community is excited about? Well, you know, stepping up and back a little bit, I would say my 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 primary takeaway coming away from the whole week is that when it comes to energy investing in exactly the kinds of technologies that you were just referencing, in investing in the basic science and supporting the research and development is so critical to our future at every level, the future of a clean energy economy, the future of U.S. competitiveness in a global economy, and from a climate standpoint, the future of life on Earth. I mean, one message that has been really dominant throughout the event articulated by many speakers in different ways is that, you know, despite many of the technologies that we've seen here this week being deemed often as high risk, 
the greatest risk of all is actually deprioritizing their investment. And that includes investment from the federal government through agencies like ARPA-E to the private sector, where it's clear that we really have important I'd say almost cultural transformation work to do to overcome the sort of risk averse short termism that often defines investment and sort of corporate partnership priorities. In fact, on that note, I had a chance to sit down on Tuesday with Dr. Chris Atkinson, who is an RPE program director. Um, he's running their most, uh, RPE's newest program called Next Car. Um, and here's what he had to say both about the program and also about the role of the private sector. NextCar is a new RPE program aimed at improving the energy efficiency of connected and automated vehicles. Why did we choose connected and automated vehicles as the area of emphasis of this latest RPE program? And the reasoning is that RPE spans the full spectrum of energy usage in the United States, all the way from energy generation, storage, transmission and distribution, and end usage. Next car fits into the end usage spectrum of the energy arena. Transportation in the US accounts for about 30-30% of all energy usage. And clearly it's an area where if we can improve vehicle energy efficiency, it stands to benefit us enormously. Bear in mind further that RPE's mandates include reducing energy imports, and the majority of the energy that we import is oil today improve the energy efficiency of the energy arena, as, as I stated, reduce emissions associated with energy, and to improve U.S. competitiveness. So give a couple examples of the kinds of, of innovations and technologies that you all are, are ideally helping to, to commercialize through this program. Uh, Nextcar is aimed at using connectivity, which vehicles are becoming more connected, more connected to each other, more connected to the infrastructure, connected to the cloud and beyond. On the one hand, connectivity. On the other hand, vehicle automation. Vehicle, vehicles are becoming far more automated in their capability. And these are two things that are happening primarily for vehicle safety and for driver convenience, if you like, on the other hand. But we at RPE immediately saw the potential to improve the energy efficiency of vehicles through using connectivity and automation. And we thought here in true RPE spirit, here is an, is, is an avenue where we can take two existing trends, connectivity and automation, and put them to the good use of re reducing the energy consumption of individual vehicles and by extension, the whole vehicle fleet. So again, we're taking two things that are happening regardless connectivity on the one hand, automation on the other, but putting them to the good use of improving energy efficiency. And that's a classic RPE maneuver, if you like, is finding out where the industry and where the world is heading and carving out fruitful areas for energy efficiency and energy optimization. So that's a perfect transition to sort of the second question I wanted to ask you, which is thinking about the green biz audience, listeners, readership, which constitute primarily private sector. And, you know, here we are at RPE, where since its inception, you know, eight years ago, mandated by Congress and building off of DARPA to really focus on building that bridge for early stage, clean technologies to help help accelerate that transition and, and overcome the chasm between research and conception to market, you know, penetration. 
what is the role of the private sector in helping to build that bridge and, and sort of talk about what both what's unique about RPE and, and, and where the private sector fits into that? That's a good question. RPE is interested in two things, one of which is the energy efficiency, as I said, but the second of which is the commercialization. We require that our projects have some pathway towards commercialization within three years. And why, you might ask. The reason is is that we know that without commercialization, without commercial deployment, all of the good work that we do would be for nothing. In other words, it is only through the deployment of the technologies that we support that we will see the energy efficiency improvements in the U.S. industry and beyond that we wish to see. So it is a requirement of all RPE projects, not only that they be very good from a technical point of view, but they have a very clear and distinct pathway towards commercialization. And in terms of the commercial success of an RPE project, there's many measures of success. A product can be launched, a product can be marketed, a product can be licensed to some third party or some other federal government agency or state agency or private investment can take over and further the development of the technology once the RPE project has reached an end. So we have very many measures of success, but by and large, it is the commercial uptake by private industry and government and beyond that makes RPE projects ultimately successful. Well, sounds like a very actionable uh, opportunity, both for, for businesses, but certainly for our, our organizations. We had a great meeting today, and I, I, I do look forward to what we can create together to help continue building those bridges. And thank you so much for the incredible work that you all are, are doing here at RPE. Thanks very much. I wanted to put in a plug for the RPE Summit again. Um, as you can see, there's 250 of our projects that are demonstrating uh, and they're in various phases in their lifetime, year one, year two, year three. And uh, this really is a showcase for us to show off to other federal agencies, um, businesses, companies, large and small, as well as to private venture and, and, and equity people, exactly what our successes are. And so it's a very valuable time for us to show off the successes and the stages of development of each of the projects that we fund. So where is all this going, Shauna? I mean, did you leave the event at the end with sort of a sense of optimism or is it, you know, back to what you were saying earlier, all just up in the air? You know, yesterday's keynote by Jeffrey Sachs, esteemed economist, director at Columbia University, was really, really moving and motivating, both for me personally and based on the standing ovation, the the buzz I, I know uh, for others as well. And, you know, it was a really powerful call to action. His point, in addition to emphasizing the urgency around climate action, the imperative state of staying below two degrees warming, is that we need to decisively decarbonize our energy system in an unprecedentedly short period of time. And that mobilizing cutting edge technology is going to be key to that. It is, as he called it, the essence of climate safety. And, you know, that was very exciting to me since it certainly affirms the focus of our work with Verge about the role of technology in advancing sustainability. But as we know, looking back at our nation's history, it's it's something that we know is possible. You know, technological advancements like the internet or GPS, both of which, by the way, came out of DARPA, ARPA-E's predecessor, happened because we set a vision, unleashed ingenuity, 
called upon diverse communities like those here represented at RPE, from scientists to engineers to research institutions to the investment community and the private sector, and, and invested resources in that innovation. And we've seen in history that it's possible, you know, achieving the impossible is possible. And um, so I'm certainly leaving RPE this week, believing that uh, the, the prospect of a 100% clean energy future is, is possible uh, sooner than later as well. So we know how to do this, and let's see if we can do it again. Uh, Shauna Rappaport, Green Biz, thanks for your time. Safe trip home. Thanks, Joel. Lauren, you had a piece this week that I want to talk about a little bit. It's about sort of the new era of ride sharing, but it's also this partnership between Lyft and a new part of, of General Motors called Maven. First of all, what is Maven? Maven is one of these interesting new entities we're seeing spin out of large automakers to focus on this whole realm of mobility. So ride sharing, car sharing, thinking longer term down the road about things like self-driving cars. So General Motors has Maven. Uh, Ford has a group called Ford Smart Mobility and Daimler, which is the parent company of Mercedes-Benz, also has their own entity called Movil. So this is not uh, like a small space, not a quirky thing GM is doing. This is a very competitive space, um, which is why we're starting to see some interesting models where these companies are trying to figure out things like how to uh, join ride sharing with uh, a fear ultimately down the road that people are going to move away from personal car ownership. Well, this is really, I think, what the big legacy automobile manufacturers are going to need to do to be to survive, to be relevant, and be profitable going forward is looking for other streams of, of revenue and other ways to, uh, to make money that don't necessarily involve selling cars. So how does that work with Maven and the EVs uh, that GM manufacturers like the Volt and the Bolt? Right. So the Volt and the Bolt are really interesting examples. In particular, the Bolt as a 230-mile range EV that clocks in at right around $30,000 after the rebate. So some people have said, wow, they, GM really kind of beat Tesla to the punch when it comes to a mass market EV. Um, and with that in mind, I think GM and Maven have been thinking about how you get that car into the hands of as many people as possible. And one interesting way they're going about that is through a partnership with with Lyft, GM, the corporate entity, has invest, invested upwards of half a billion dollars with a B in Lyft. Um, so what they're doing is giving drivers for Lyft who, who rent their cars the opportunity to rent the Bolt in urban areas like Los Angeles. And then what happens is Maven, uh, the, the GM spinoff, provides a technology platform. They make it easy for drivers to reserve the cars, pay for the cars. It comes out of part of their uh, pay that they get for, for driving Lyft customers. Um, and another thing to keep an eye on, Maven also does their own car rentals. So kind of coming in to directly compete with the Zip cars or even like the Hertz and Enterprise rent-a-cars of the world. Um, and it's, it's an interesting model where you can do everything from reserve the car to actually unlock and start the car up through your phone. 
Well, this is something that uh, GM uh, has already tried to get around, which is a company that they've uh, invested in, which is, allows any car to be uh, a uh, car sharing car, uh, because uh, largely through their OnStar service, where you know OnStar allows you to re uh, unlock and and lock your car remotely, which means you could hand the code off to somebody who you don't necessarily meet up with physically, and you can track where the car is and its condition and lots of other things. So it sounds like they're starting to integrate that into this model, but I'm sort of curious about why did they want to test this out in LA of all places? Well, that is a very sage observation, Joel, about OnStar. The chief technology officer of Maven, Paul Pebbles, was actually GM's point on the OnStar technology. So really, they're trying to integrate all of these disparate technologies and bring them together. Um, but in terms of why LA, uh, the idea is that cities are sort of an ideal setting to combat things like range anxiety that you get with EVs, uh, the average trips that they're seeing in cities like LA are relatively short. So you can get sort of a lot of bang for your buck on one charge in an urban environment. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they sort of try to adapt this for a more suburban or rural setting. Like you think of a city like Phoenix, where things can be really spread out. How do you deal with range anxiety there? But overall, Maven is deployed in 17 cities so far from Ann Arbor, Michigan to Atlanta to uh, New Jersey. So there is some variety. It'll be interesting to see where they go next. But in the meantime, here is Maven CTO Paul Pebbles talking about the evolution of Maven's platform for ride sharing and car sharing. So Maven's platform that we've developed over the last year and a half or so, um, and, and it's truly um, it's truly a global platform. We do have some pilots running in other countries, um, and it really provides some basic functionality. So um, the ability to um, uh, make a reservation with the car, the ability to check to make sure the driver's license and credit cards are good, the ability to bill for for these different models, um, and, and really even the seamless access that we have in our city program, where um, you download the app, you give us your driver's license, credit card, entire experience is through the app. So I can make a reservation, walk up to the car, use the Bluetooth, talk to the car, unlock the doors, and then drive all through my phone. So. So even even enablers that we have built for car sharing, um, you know, you can you can envision somewhere in the future that this is beneficial for for GM as a whole. So being able to to, to build that out, offer up those capabilities, um, we think that we're still really in the early days, though. Um, you know, the the few different models that we have today between our city offering, our home offering, and our uh, gig offering, or express drive offering, sorry. Um, those are all, um, you know, different models of, of sharing vehicles in general. Um, there's still a lot more that we can do with our platform. Um, probably this is really to talk about some of those other opportunities, but, um, but it, but it really does open up uh, a lot of enablers when, when I kind of take the physical key out of the mix, when I take the one-to-one -one relationship out of the mix, there's so many different opportunities that we can explore from a business perspective. So I guess the obvious question here, Lauren, is, how do they make money? I mean, is this one of those, you know, tech ideas in search of a business model, or do they actually know what they're going to do? Did you talk to Paul Pebbles about that? I did ask him that, and it sounds like it's a little bit of a moving target. There's variation from city to city, but in general, it's a tiered pricing model. So sort of like you get with an Uber, if you want the big Escalade SUV <laughs> for whatever brand it is, that's going to cost you um, more like upwards of $20 an hour. 
But if you just need a teeny little car to zip around the city, that can be six or eight dollars an hour. Um, and so the, the thing I'll be interested in is if there's any sort of price premium for EVs. Right now they have partnerships with EV charging companies that they're working on um, that I'll be interested to see um, sort of how consumers respond to that. Can they deal with figuring out the, the hassle of EV charging or is that why people don't own an EV in the first place? I think there's sort of some things about um, routine comforts that will be interesting to watch evolve. Um, but one other thing to keep an eye on is sort of how all of the data that's being generated by these trips with EVs and other shared cars is going to be used by GM and other automakers to plot their ventures into the autonomous vehicle space. So Maven, Lyft, and GM have started to tenuously talk about 2018 as a target date for launching a fleet of autonomous electric vehicles. Obviously, we've heard Tesla and others, Ford, talk a lot about this space. So at this point, it's a little bit of a race to see who can get those on the road. And it's going to be a really interesting race among cities to see which ones uh want to be at the front of this, like Phoenix, so that's just already stepped up, and Pittsburgh, um, and, and which cities and, and states are going to be protective and saying, no, we don't want cars driving around, and what that does to competitiveness. It, it, it's just going to be fascinating to watch this. Yeah, you're right. That's a huge question. And so I did ask Paul Pebbles what he sees coming down the pike next. You know, a modern, convenient, accessible mega city like that, that's a really good place to test out these concepts. You know, if you're going to have a vehicle ownership model change, um, I just actually think I saw in the news the last couple of days that L.A. is the worst in the world for traffic, if I saw that right. Um, uh, being able to offer this up, like at the, at the um, metro station, we've got um, uh, vehicles located. So if somebody's coming off the public transit, being able to take a mate and do what they have to do and return it is definitely going to help take, you know, some cars off the road. So I think we're still in the very early stages. But we are, we are definitely um, very excited to be working with um, specifically the city of L.A., uh, DOT, to, to figure out what these right models are. Um, the nice part, again, is that, you know, we've got this platform. Um, we've got this capability. And, and that there's some things that we could do from a plug-and-play perspective relatively quickly. Now, we're still um, – we actually spent about six hours with the L.A. DOT when we were out there last week. Um, you know, we, we really try to figure out what are the right areas we want to collaborate and work on um, to really study what can make a difference for a city like Ohio. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organizations and stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. Our podcast director, as always, Soraya Melkonian. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you, 350 at greenbiz.com. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.